This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Welcome to the Be Here Now Network guest podcast. This series features talks from a myriad of modern spiritual teachers expanding on how we can all live a life in balance. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, please go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash guest. And today happens to be, some of you may be aware of it, some of you may be in the retreat and not aware of it, but it happens to be Memorial Day. And this is important that it's Memorial Day because I think regardless of what what you may feel or I may feel about war or about the military, we can all um, relate to and understand the longing to live for a purpose that's bigger than just ourselves. And in America, our warriors are their volunteers. These are people who have chosen to put their lives on the line uh, to serve and protect other lives, our lives, actually. And so I think wherever we may, wherever any of us may stand and find ourselves on the political spectrum, that even with our wildly divergent beliefs um, and passionate beliefs, I think we can all share the simple respect for selfless service, for personal sacrifice, and for the love of country. And, you know, this kind of mutual respect is the most, it's a really honorable road to peace. And I think everybody here wants peace in our world. And when we practice loving kindness together, mindfulness and loving kindness, we realize just our inextricable unity. We realize um, all of our diversities that are beautiful, (laughs) magical, heartbreaking blue planet and life here together. We are not separate. We are definitely interconnected. And as we feel this kind of stunning unity that that connects us all, um, we can get inspired. I mean, I get inspired when I think of people who are who carry and hold and enact this intention to um, to dedicate their lives to serve others and and to take care of life in every form. And that's another thing I want to talk about a little bit in this talk, just taking care of life in the form of me, life in the form of you, life in the form of each other. And it's something that I know uh, Jack and I have really been talking about. How do we balance our life, our work, uh, our spiritual connection, our individual uh, aspirations? How do we hold all this and take good care of this life and this body that, as Dogen said, uh, take care of this body, which is the fruit of many, of many lives, our ancestors and many of us. Um, so as you know, just to recap, we're, we're practicing being with this body. We're practicing from with being with the body from within the experience of being this body. So instead of 
sort of looking at the body as a thing and reifying it and talking about it and weighing it and dressing it and comparing it and judging it and all of those things. We experience it from within, from within the sensations of aliveness um, of just being this body. And then we see the way that we're following the pleasant and recoiling from the unpleasant and well, maybe hopefully developing different relationship with the neutral as well. Uh, Those neutral moments that can lead to serenity and then seeing how the thoughts and emotions are linked. And then the fourth foundation of mindfulness is all the teachings that the Buddha taught and all of the lists and all of the beautiful, intricate um, architecture and structure. And as one person said, the anatomy of the Buddha's teachings uh, can be summed up in his saying, I teach one thing and one thing only. I teach about suffering and the release of suffering, the sure heart's release. So when we look at this question of the sure heart's release and the compassion that is in that uh, aspiration, that statement by the Buddha. And then think about the fact that we have 30 million Americans, it's just Americans, who are on antidepressants. Um, you know, that's, that's a lot of people who've been so drowning in the helplessness and hopelessness that they feel that they are turning to medicine to help because they really don't know um, the things that we're practicing here, you know, and here you are strengthening your, um, you're reinforcing your ability to steady the heart, to quiet your mind, to be present with, for others, um, especially in this time of such great uncertainty in our life. And it turns out that across the ages, and I get, Uh, encouraged by this, that across the ages, uh, whenever humanity has gone through super hard times, the people who have inner strength not only survive the best, but help those around them, whether they're soldiers or civilians, no matter who we are, that in the time of, uh, especially now in the time of COVID-19, For each of us to contribute whatever beauty um, we can to the world just feels ever more important. And I love that we're actually surrounded by love and kindness. And we can see that, you know, just by looking at the little tiles, um, these just waving at each other through these Zoom windows, right, that um, we're surrounded by love and kindness. seeing your faces and seeing your smiles. And um, I know if I asked you to wave, you would all very kindly wave at me. (laughs) Yes, we can wave at each other. (laughs) It's very sweet. And, you know, practicing metta, practicing this kindness and love, it brings happiness. It makes us happy. And looking at the world with eyes of love, um, it brings moments of joy and also moments of wakefulness. as I said earlier to somebody, I um, can't remember if it was in a small group or the bigger group, but you know, we go towards that which we find, which brings us happiness. Hopefully that's, um, you know, that we have sonar for that. And that helps us be more awake and aware. So this flow of loving kindness, when we direct it to ourselves, which we really, which is so important to do, And I opened the retreat by, I mean, in my original teaching, it seems like so many days ago, by talking about receiving, by talking about opening our hearts to receive love, to receive the love that exists, that we can begin to feel in the world. Uh, Ram Das, who who became a really good friend of mine um, later in our lives, I was never drawn to Ram Dass's teaching when I was young. I was a hardcore Zen student, and I thought he was all love and light, and I just wasn't into that then. Um, so I wasn't very interested in him, actually, until 
after he had his stroke and began to speak from his vulnerability. Because those of you who don't know him, he he spent 20 years uh, completely paralyzed on one side of his body, sitting in a wheelchair. And he, you know, even one side of his throat couldn't swallow. So eating wasn't that easy for him. And watching him, I guess I knew him pretty well for the last maybe 12 years of his life, certainly 10. And watching him become more and more loving and more and more tenderized and radiate more and more love as his body became more and more painful and difficult to manage. You know, the shoulder that used to work and the arm that used to be able to help lift him up, that went. And, you know, I just watched the progressive losses. And instead of becoming increasingly sad or increasingly bitter or increasingly upset, he just got increasingly tenderized and loving. And that opened a door of possibility for all of us as we witnessed that. Um, so he was willing to receive the love of the universe, of God. For him, it was his guru, Maharaji, who embodied that love and devotion. And the willingness to receive love and to be nourished um, by the loving kindness that we can offer to ourselves. This is the same thing as feeding other people. It's not really personal. You know, sometimes we hear, uh, sometimes we hear the teachings of no self as though, you know, we're not supposed to have one, as though it's a mistake to have a self. It's selfish. It's wrong. But yourself is the, um, it's the agent or it carries, it conveys realization. It conveys insight and intelligence and understanding and compassion and all these qualities that we revere. So we need to be very caring towards ourselves, take very good care of ourselves and of this body, the fruit of many lives. And one of the ways to do that is to imagine, and many of you don't have to imagine, you've been teachers for all your life or you've you know, you're, you're, you're already living or have lived a very noble life dedicated to helping others in one way or another. Um, and having that deep intention for our life and honoring our purpose and understanding that simply who we are is a contribution to the world. Our very existence can be a contribution to the world and we don't have to be you know, a big world savior or a huge activist um, for that to be true. We just have to be true to who we actually are. So this self, life in the form of you, life in the form of me, this particular being that we are, this little bit of time and space that's crystallized as you or as me, I love to think of it that way, that we're just this bit of life appearing and disappearing, you know, in this stream of eternity. And uh, that we, each one of us, are a form of metta to the Dharma. Somebody was talking in a small group today about offering loving kindness to loving kindness, offering metta to the practices, because her life was being transformed right here in this retreat and her gratitude was manifesting in that way of offering loving kindness to the very practices that we're doing here. Uh, this is a quote from the Sargadatta. He says, all you need is already within you. So approach yourself with reverence and love. Make love of yourself perfect. And we're gonna do a practice toward the end of this talk uh, a practice of a particular way of loving ourselves that I want to offer to you. And every time that we're strengthening a particular quality, 
we have to remember not to underestimate the power of small actions or of offering one phrase of blessing or of metta. There are so many references in the suttas um, and in the spiritual writings about this, about the importance of just one moment of offering love. And because this is a lifelong process of transformation, something that happens one moment at a time, one metaphrase at a time, beginning anew over and over again. We need some heartening and we need some encouragement. And one of the teachings that I really love from the Buddha is this one. He said, um, my teaching is like a gradual descent. And he's not talking about a descent into depression or despair. He's talking about a descent into depth and uh, insight a descent into the depth of ourselves. You know, he didn't say this, but it's like it's like if you walk in the mist and over time of walking, you don't notice it, but you're getting soaked. And finally you realize you're soaking wet. It's like that. And the practice seeps into us. It seeps into our life. And over time, um, and over time, we realize we're not looking at ourselves or the world in the same way. We're seeing things differently, but it didn't happen all at once. And, um, and it's not because there's some huge opening. Those can happen for some people. You know, some people are wired to have a dramatic practice, lots of big openings. And some of us have a more gentle, incremental, gradual kind of practice. And, uh, even if you have these wonderful, huge openings that if you don't have them, you wish you did. That's just our human nature, how it works. They don't change everything miraculously. Uh, ask people who've had them. It's a more organic and gradual process. And so the Buddha said, uh, just as the great ocean slants and slopes and inclines gradually, not dropping off abruptly, so too, in this dharma and discipline, this practice and this sila, the goodness of our practice, he said, in all of this, it occurs the penetration to final freedom, to knowledge and, and deliverance from suffering. These things happen by gradual training, gradual activity, gradual practice, not abruptly. Little by little, walking in the mist, we get wet. So just to say a few words now about uh, metta and anatta, this idea of no self. I'll start, I'll just tell you a story. Uh, this is a story about the great Cambodian teacher, Mahagosananda. He had the title uh, Supreme Patriarch of, of Cambodia, kind of like head monk of Cambodia. And he was overseas at the time that the Khmer Rouge really just overtook the country. And 17 members of his family were killed uh, at that time. And he went back afterwards and led peace walks and walked through areas with landmines and was just very fearless and generous with his life and practice and helping his people. And I had the great uh, privilege, really, to travel with him on different occasions uh, on pilgrimage with my Korean Zen teacher, Desan Sanim. And one of these travels was to Korea on a pilgrimage to the ancient Zen temples there where there was a big 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 ceremony being held in honor of our teacher's 60th birthday which is a big birthday in uh in that culture and this ceremony was held at a country temple called Sudoksa uh I don't know how far from Seoul but there were about 700 people there Mostly monastics, but some lay people too, monks and nuns, and some lay people, and then some uh, Western teachers too, who had gathered and been invited to give t 
talks that were being translated into Korean, and we listened to the talks in Korean without, of course, understanding them. But but we could get the energy and the feeling of it. So different people got up and gave their lovely talks, and uh, you know the ones we could understand, we definitely appreciated. And then Mahagasananda, it was his turn, and he stood at that podium just wearing his Theravada monk's robes, which are different from the Korean monastics robes. The Korean robes are literally like a robe, with a gray robe with a brown uh, kesa and a belt. And he, but his robe, his, his shoulder was naked, just draped over one shoulder, which made him somehow seem more vulnerable standing there like that. And instead of giving a beautiful Dharma talk, what he did was he conjugated the verb to be, and he did it in French, which remember French was the language of those who had colonized and oppressed his country in the past, Cambodia. But he used that language and he just stood there very simply and he said, Je suis, tu es, il est, elle est, nous sommes, vous sont, no, excuse me, nous sommes, vous êtes, ils sont, elles sont, which means, I'm sure you can conjugate the verb to be, I am, you are. He is, she is, they are. We are, you are. They are, and it's masculine and feminine in, in the French language. So they don't really have um, a specific gender neutral pronoun the way we use the they. But the point is that that is pretty much all he said. He said a few words afterwards, but as he stood there and spoke in the simplest possible way about being, about existence, embodying the aliveness of what that is, we, he radiated so much metta. It just poured off of him to the point where we sat with tears streaming down our faces. Now, obviously, he didn't say any, he didn't tell a sad story or say anything so moving, but his ability to transmit that much love was so powerful and, and so beautiful, really, so, so beautiful. And I learned a lot from the simplicity the nakedness that I talked about before, his willingness to just stand so simply and not need to be anyone special or prove his, I don't know, brilliance or goodness as a teacher or anything like that. Just so simple and such um, bare presence of being that was so inspiring. And and where does that come from? Where does that come from, that ability to do that? How did he get like that? We know that he suffered immensely. Anybody who loses their family suffers immensely, um, whether a lay person or a monastic. It's a human being who has feelings. And what I can tell you is that on the the pilgrimage trips that I took with him, which were all together about six weeks, we would be traveling in a bus for long periods of time, often in the heat. Uh, we were in big China for a month, um, as well as Korea, but separate trips. And But each time we would finally arrive at a temple, all the Westerners, all of us, we would pour out of the bus and I will speak for myself. All I wanted was a place to stretch out and lie down at that point and couldn't wait to find it. 
And Mahagosananda would get off the bus and he would instantly walk to a place where, maybe to the side of the temple, where he could do walking meditation back and forth. And he would just begin doing his walking meditation back and forth. And he practiced metta all the time. That was his practice, sitting, walking, moving about. He practiced loving kindness. And by the end of his life, Ramdas too was able to just radiate so much love. We were at the last retreat that he, we were teaching with him at the last retreat in Hawaii in December. He passed away two weeks after that retreat. And he really wanted to be able to go to that retreat. And honestly, for a couple of months leading up to the retreat, he was so ill that when I would call him, I mean, he just would be like, uh, he couldn't even talk often. Um, he would just be happy to see, you know, smile and wave, really didn't have the strength to talk. And I thought, what are we going to do for this retreat? How are we going to even get him there? But he had that desire, that wish to be there. And somehow, a day or two before the retreat, he just got better enough to be there. And then, yeah, two weeks later, he, he passed away. But that ability to radiate that kind of love, it comes from that selflessness, that ability to let go of self-preoccupation and self-consciousness and make room for something else, make room to receive something else, that mystery of being, that sense of love that can be here in the universe. And, and so I want to tell you a story about non-identification with experience. Um, that comes from my teacher, Desan Sanim. Some of you may have heard me tell this story because it's one of the ones that was such a powerful teaching story for me. And it happened uh, years ago when I was just, I had just gotten divorced. I had left my marriage. It was, that means almost 20 years ago. Yeah, 20 years ago now. And I, was, I didn't want to leave. I loved my husband. I was just so heartbroken about the whole thing. And, um, and, and Stantanin, he knew, he knew us both really well. Um, my husband was a teacher in that tradition at that time, so a heart student of his. And I hadn't seen him since our separation. He came from Korea to visit in Cambridge where I was living in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And some of the old students we made, we were going to meet at a Korean restaurant and have lunch with him. And while we were sitting and waiting uh, for our table, and you know, you remember where you're sitting in these, in these iconic moments. We were sitting on a red Naga hide bench in the restaurant waiting for our table. And I was sitting next to him and he took my hand and I just started to cry, just, you know, really cry. And just from that gesture of kindness, it touched my heart and I was crying. And he didn't turn to me or anything, but he squeezed my hand and he muttered very softly one word. He just said, weather, which I knew he meant W-E-A-T-H-E-R. That's all he said, but it was such a powerful teaching because he was saying these tears that are running down your face right now, they're like the rain. They come and they go. He was saying our emotions are like this. They're like the weather. We don't really have to identify with them the way that we the way that we do anyway, even though we don't have to. And I felt, you know, he was not um, a demonstrative man particularly, but I felt uh, very loved by him in that moment. Uh, the Dharma is so deeply, 
found really ultimately loving, especially when we're suffering and going through a really hard time. And we can still feel, as T.S. Eliot said, quoting St. Julian of Norwich, and I think at this time too, I love these words, and all shall be well, all manner of things shall be well. And that we can rest in that trust or that faith um, in that direction of our life journey, free of ownership. But just the experience, like Mahagosananda demonstrated, of simple, friendly, open-hearted presence. So I want to read you a little piece, not the whole thing, but a piece of a Mary Oliver poem that, for me, captures this combination of love and awareness of metta and emptiness of no self. It really, uh, I feel it conveys it, and you'll see if you feel that too. She says, look, I want to love this world as though it's the last chance I'm ever going to have to be alive and know it. Sometimes in late summer, I won't touch anything. Not the flowers, not the blackberries brimming in the thickets. I won't drink from the pond. I won't even name the birds or the trees. I won't whisper my own name. One morning, the fox came down the hill, glittering and confident and didn't see me. She was, Mary Oliver, the poet, she was so quiet, not touching anything with her mind even, just observing, just receiving, just so quiet that even a wild animal didn't sense her presence. But one morning the fox came down the hill glittering and confident and didn't see me. And I thought, so this is the world. I'm not in it. It's beautiful. As Dogen Zenji said, in Buddhism, we study the self. We study what is this? Who is this? What is this? What is this being? What is this existence? We look deeply into that question. And we do this in order to forget the self in order to free our hearts from having to be, you know, Trudy or Priscilla or Carlita or Richard, just to free our hearts and to free our hearts from having to be the roles that we play in life and all of the various identifications that we carry to exist in the world. And that's what is meant by forget the self. And then goes on to say, to forget the self is to be illumined, awakened, enlightened by all things, just as Mary, Mary Oliver so beautifully expressed, I feel, in that poem. You know, this is a tall order because it really involves, it really involves seeing that, um, that we're, we're really okay, we're really perfect, just as we are. Of course, as Suzuki Roshi said, there's always room for improvement. But even when we don't see our perfection, it's still true. It, it's just, and, and you know, when we're in our more awake states, we can see there's really no need to be anyone or anything other than who we are, just as we are. And the self that wants to be some other self that identifies um, with all of that, that self arises and then falls away. It vanishes. And you've all had moments of experiencing this, even little you know, micro moments. You've experienced this in this retreat when you're sitting and when you're walking, just moments of feeling that open-hearted, simple receptivity like Mahagosananda was showing us. And 
I want to tell a story about my heart teacher, Maureen Stewart Roshi. I practiced, I met her, I think in 1979, and I practiced with her until she passed away in 1990. And before then, I had been practicing in the practicing Vipassana meditation, insight meditation, and Zen, and really going back and forth between the two. And people would ask me, you know, what was it that, that you saw that made you go from one tradition to the other? And I was, I tell the truth, I was very honest. And I said, look, it really depended on, uh, because remember in those days, we didn't have all these retreat centers and everything. We had IMS and Barry, we had a few Zen centers, that was kind of it. Um, I said, it depended on when there was a retreat available and I had time off work and I had childcare. And if it was Zen, I went to the Zen retreat. And if it was Vipassana or Insight Meditation, I went to that retreat. I traded time with other single moms. I did what I needed to do uh, to be able to do retreat when I had time off work. Um, but when I found Maureen, that was it. I just practiced with her um, until she passed away. And she got cancer, and when she was recovering from her cancer surgery uh, and came back to the Zendo, I noticed that she started putting the incense. We would always light a stick of incense uh, for meditation, and the incense was, it always sat on the altar in this little um, beautiful little uh, black bowl that was just hand rubbed to a shine, to a glow by a potter from the New Mexican Pueblo, uh, Native American ar artist. And that bowl, it was full of um, tamped down ash because that's how we, that's what we put the incense in. Just lock, the ash would accumulate. And then you just would um, tap the bowl. like, And as you tap the bowl, the incense would become very, very smooth. And then you put the stick of incense in and each slender stick of incense of course just vanishes into smoke and creates more ash and um and finally that all that fine grade powder you sift it and you tap it down and another stick of incense and as it burns the little bits of ash you can see them on this beautiful smooth surface of the ash um and I mean, they, they have, there's this little trail. It looks like like teeny weeny little poops from some tiny creature uh, across the surface of the ash. And then the incense is lit from a candle on the altar and placed in its perfect spot. Um, but after her surgery, Maureen started putting the, uh, the little pot of ash and the stick of incense on the floor right next to her. And she wanted you, she just wanted to savor the smell of her favorite incense, which was called Kenpaku, Golden Temple. And she would just breathe it in fully, deeply. I mean, in those days, we didn't worry about the fact that it was air pollution. It was smelled good. And she would breathe in that incense and just savor it and love it. And this was a deeply enlightened woman of immense, really very immense spiritual strength, a very strong and beautiful teacher. And she, and still there she was. I mean, she certainly of anybody understood how to forget the self, but there she was uh, loving and savoring every pleasurable whiff of that incense. You know, in fact, her last words of teaching to me were, I asked her, you know, after your long life of practice, what would you say if I asked you to sum up your life of practice? And I never would have dared ask her that if she hadn't been dying at that point, um, which she was. And she answered, live it up. I was puzzled when she said that. I thought, you know, here we spent these grueling hours meditating and sitting through pain and sitting through all our troubles and worries and longings and lust and fantasies and everything else that humans experience. What did she mean, live it up? 
but I think she meant this capacity to receive life wholeheartedly and fully and to manifest that beautiful presence that Mahagasananda showed us to radiate the love that comes naturally into our hearts. It is, um, we say it's our true nature, our birthright. It's just part of who we are and how we're wired when we're not worried about ourselves and when we can let all that fall away even for a few moments. So what I would like to do now is introduce a simple practice that we can do together. It's a practice of metta for ourselves, but in a special way. And I recommend this for people who may actually not like doing metta for themselves or find out that they can't really feel anything at all. It's just not a very accessible practice uh, for some people. So we're going to offer metta for ourselves as a child. So I want to encourage you to stay with me and to do the practice with me. And I'll guide you through it and we'll do it for about 10 minutes and then we will sit together for a few minutes and just be quiet as we end our day of practice together. So for the metta meditation, it's really important that you be comfortable. So find a comfortable posture, switch your shift or switch your posture if you need to now. And it helps to close your eyes for this. And I always like to take a few deep breaths just to settle into being here in the body. And so I want to invite you to call to mind an image of yourself when you were little. And really just use the first thing that comes to mind. Don't try to sort through every photograph you remember seeing of yourself as a kid. Just whatever age comes to mind. You might be a toddler, you might be a teenager, anything in between. And just see this. And then when you have that, what we're doing next is we're going to magically step into that picture, that image or that photograph. We're going to step right into that scene and it's going to magically come alive. So now you're close to take a look at this child who was you at one time and notice what what you're wearing whether you're barefoot and you have shoes on what the hair is like And notice the surroundings, just what time of day it is and whether it's hot out or cold out or in between. And if it's a very small you, a small child when you're 
then you might want to get down at that level so that you're looking into the eyes of this child. Be sitting and facing them, or if they're bigger, standing and facing them. Doesn't matter, but just to look into their eyes and see how it is for that young one. And see if you can remember what it was like to be that child. And how strange the adult world can appear from a kid's perspective. Just if you can tap into that felt sense of being young and open. Curious and sensitive and exploring. And when you're ready, Introduce yourself. Explain that they grew up to be you. And that however challenging life may have been at that time, they survived. You survived and you grew up to be me. And that's a good thing. You know, children have a special power to imagine what will be healing and bring them happiness. And let this child, you know what this child would most want and need to hear at this time in their life. And then begin to tell her or him to say some of the things that would have been so helpful and meaningful to this child to know, to hear from their parents or their caregivers at that time in their life. And it could be something simple, like, you know, you're okay, you're such a great kid. Or it can be more specific things having to do with the context of that child's family, of your family from then. Words that will help that child feel known and understood in a way that was probably not possible back then. 
Just taking your time. Enjoying being together. And when you're ready, when you feel ready, you can let them know that you're here, that they can always find you when they need you. That they are part of you and always will be. If it's a little child, put them on your knee, give them a hug. If it's an older kid, you just put an arm around their shoulders, whatever feels appropriate. Some gesture, a physical gesture of loving kindness, of metta, of love. And as you do this, just let that child melt into your heart as you embrace them or hug them or draw them close. Just imagine that they are melting into your heart, dissolving and melting into your heart. And then let the whole scene, the context where you were together from back then, let that whole scene just dissolve and melt into your heart. And let's just sit quietly together for a few minutes.
I like to close our meditation by offering, once again, whatever goodness has arisen from our practice together, whatever has been beneficial during this, this day, this time that we've shared. We offer freely from the heart to all beings everywhere without exception. May our life be a contribution and a blessing for ourselves and for our world. May we and all beings find a way to work together to protect and care and really share what we have to offer in this life, our wisdom, our compassion, our various blessings to the folks who need them. May we and all beings be safe, happy, healthy, and free. So thank you, everybody, for your kind attention. And I wish you a wonderful, really peaceful, whatever form it takes, uh, an evening, an afternoon, whatever time zone you're in. Um, Just a chance to step into the magic of loving awareness. And the magic is that it can transform, you know, it can really transform any of our moments when we remember to to do it. Yeah, this is what it's like to be a human being. Here we are together. And I wish you a really peaceful and good time until we meet again. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.